0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Rupa Maria, Ade Romero-Briones, and host Anna LaPay. This conversation is co-presented with Real Food Media.
1: Welcome, everybody. I am Kira Epstein, the coordinator of the new school at Commonweal. Today, I am so pleased to welcome our host, Anna LaPay in conversation with Rupa Maria and Ade Romero Briones. Today's conversation is the first of a three-part series that we've been working on for a while called Roots of Resilience in an Age of Crisis, where we will explore the interconnectedness of land, seed, and water with a leading group of thinkers and doers. And we'll look at ways out of the crises facing us as well. It's wonderful to see you all here with us on this webinar. We've got people coming in from all over the place, which is fantastic. Um, Today, our first event in the series, we're with Rupa, Ade and Anna to talk about Stolen Land, the Struggle for Rematriation. And our next event in the series is Friday, May 21st, with Kristen Leach, Jessica Greendeer, and Tiffany Patton hosting it's called seed saving, preserving culture, and building resilience. And then Friday, June 18th, we've got Tom Philpot, Jonaki Jagannath, and Anna Lapay again uh, to talk about Thirsty California, water, agribusiness, and the future of food. It has been a real pleasure to work with our co-presenters at Real Food Media on this series. Thank you to Anna and to Tiffany Golden for all of the creativity and the skill and the dedication and all the outreach for these events. We are recording this conversation and will have produced audio and video files available on our website. Uh, you can also find all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Ken Adams is behind the scene as usual, helping us with the production. Thank you, Ken. And now we are ready to begin. Rupa Maria Ade Romero Briones and Anna Lape. Welcome to the new school at Commonweal.
2: Thank you so much, Kira, and thank you all for joining us. It's really lovely to see where you're, you're Zooming in from and uh, to see so many uh, friends among, uh, among you, including some people some of us have known for a very long time. So welcome, everybody, new friends and old friends alike. Uh, as Kira mentioned, my name is Anna LaPay. I'm an author, and activist and uh, a strategic advisor and founder to Real Food Media and Tiffany Patton and I are really excited to have partnered, as Kira said, on this series called Roots of Resilience and you are joining us for part one in the series and uh, I just couldn't be more thrilled to be joined here today with Rupa and aday They are two of my favorite people in the world and uh, hopefully by the time this webinar is over, they might be two of your favorite people as well. So today uh, with Rupa and Ade, uh, we will be exploring the themes of land, power and exploitation, and how movements have for generations uh, been fighting for land, fighting, fighting against land and resource extraction and fighting for pathways of resilience. Uh, I just want to say a few words about Rupa in a day for those of you who do not know them, but then really offer them a chance to tell you a bit more of their own story. Uh, so Rupa Maria is a physician, an activist, mother, and musician. You might notice actually uh, Rupa is wearing scrubs. Uh, she's actually <laughs> zooming in from UCSF uh, where she uh, she works along with, alongside a lot of other work she does. Uh, so if that beeper goes off and she dashes off, yeah, you know, you know it's for a good cause. Uh, but um, she's grounded in the work as a physician but as i said also an incredible musician uh, she also often uh, uh, calls herself a which what she is a farmer's wife as well uh, she's really involved uh, with uh, really incredible work uh, with farming and agroecology which she'll share more today and i also wanted to highlight she is the author of a soon to be released book uh, with uh Raj Patel called Inflamed Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. And so you'll be hearing some themes that will be in the pages of that forthcoming book as well in conversation today. Uh, I will also say Rupa does have a strong Twitter game. So for those of you who are on that platform, that is another way uh, to get uh, bursts of inspiration and wisdom from Rupa. Uh, We're also joined uh, uh, today uh, with Ade Briones Romero, who, uh, again, another incredible hero of mine, director of programs of the Native Agriculture and Food Systems Program at First Nations Development Institute, where she supports tribes and Native communities building sustainable food systems to improve health, strengthen food security, and increase control over native agriculture and food systems. And uh, so I'm really thrilled uh, not just to be in conversation with each of them, but for them to be in conversation with each other today as well. And again, thank you for joining us. And thanks to the New School at Commonweal for this partnership. It's been really a pleasure. Um, So I want to pause here to share any more about either of them, as I said, to really open up, uh, to start our conversation with hearing uh, a bit from from Ade and from Rupa, uh, grounding us in this theme of today, which is land. And I thought we would start, and we'll start with you, Ade, to have you start by sharing a bit of your own story of how you came to the work you're doing today, uh, to this conversation of land, and how that connects to your own experience of place and of land. So we'll start with you, Ade, and then go over to you, Rupa
3: hopa I'm Kochiti um, and Kiowa. I I married a native Hawaiian, native California man, so we are here in California in his homelands. And um I, I started the introduction in Kochiti. Because, like in in my community, we're taught you give an introduction, and it informs the people you're talking to, like who you bring to the table. And we think of it as like a long comet tail of all these people and experiences and places that we bring into the conversation, and that all stems from like the lands and the people that that made us. And no matter where we speak from or what topic like that is the center we are not the center we are just like part of this very long comet tale. and um i grew up i i love i have the dream job i get to work with indigenous people across the mainland hawaii and alaska working on food and agriculture projects um, community-based food and agricultural projects and i come from a community born and raised in kochiki which who, they're considered like subsistence farmers. Um, and I think a lot of my work has, has always been challenging this idea of subsistence. I think when we think of subsistence, it's this really, to me, it's a derogatory term that, but that's, that's how people understand like indigenous food, food systems. sometimes is like this idea of subsistence, but really it's like a, economic term that kind of talks about the bare minimum that people need and everything above that threshold can then be sold or commodified for the profit or put into the economic system and so many of the projects and work work that I do is to challenge that idea of subsistence based on my own upbringing in Cochiti in a community that was once solely subsistence now it's changed but thank you and I'll pass to Rupa. Thank you. It's so good
4: to see your beautiful faces. Um, it's the highlight of my day. Um, I did hand off my pager duties, so we should not be interrupted. Um, I am Rupa Maria. I am um, the daughter of Bharat Kumar Singh, uh, Bharat Kumar Maria, and um, my mother, Radesh Kumari Singh. Um, I was born and raised here and where I'm speaking to you from, which is the unceded, occupied um, Ramatushaloni territory in the village of Yalamu, what is now called San Francisco. My sons were born here. My grandfather passed here. I'm honored to be um, practicing my medicine here and in a really great relationship with the ocean, which I say all my songs and my gifts of my life come from the ocean. And I really believe it. I can sit near near her and listen all day um, to that music. And so I feel very blessed to be in this conversation with you. And I'm very inspired by the work you're doing, Ade and Anna, both of you. For me, land... You know, I, um, my ancestors are Punjabi and we come from a dynasty of warrior farmers. Um, and so it's only natural that I would, I guess, evolve into a warrior farmer myself, healer, farmer, warrior people. Um, my ancestors that land, um, 700 years ago when my ancestors left the deserts of Rajasthan. So about a thousand years ago, we were in the deserts, um, the, my my ancestry split, so um folks who headed west became now the Romani people or the gypsies of um, Europe, to use a derogatory term, and my people went north to become settled farmers in the Punjab region. Um, watching what's happening right now in India with the Punjabi farmer protests is just such a beautiful thing to witness the um the fire of my people in resisting the violence of colonial capitalism in our lands and food system. And that resistance is thousands of years old, not just um, with capitalism, but that the mentality, the wave succession of um, systems of domination. And so for me in this land, I grew up, um, you know, very, um, you know, raised here mostly, but then spending some time with my grandparents in India and would come home here and would feel this presence here that felt like the presence I feel in India, which is very old and, and connected um, to culture. And I would be confused. I didn't understand like what I was feeling didn't match the strip malls that I was seeing. What I felt when I walked in the bay groves um, along the coast or through the redwoods and with the ferns, I was like something, was what's disconnected? And that sent me on a long journey that um, undid my teachings in fourth grade around the missions and undid um, my own understanding and conceptualizations of what happened here. And so to me, land is everything. It's our stories. It's our place. It's our bodies and our ancestors' bodies. And um, and this is not my land. This is where I was born and raised. And this is where I am, I have an opportunity to be a guest. And so for me, my question is how to be a good guest and how to Um, help steward the healing um, with my friends um, people who become dear friends as they um, seek to reconnect and heal from the violence of colonialism, which continues to this day. So land is the modality. Um, It's the language. It's um, It's the matrix upon which this healing can happen. And so um, it's not just metaphorical how I'm speaking, it's actually literal when we look at the transmission of microbes and the transmission of memory and information um, from the land. So I am very humbled by this work. When I say I'm a farmer's wife, and both Raj and Anna (laughs) laugh a little bit at it, um, I I say it as a real thing, like I have dirt in my bed at night, that is not a normal thing. (laughs) I have seeds like all over the house, everywhere, all the time. Um, It's a beautiful life. And I feel so grateful to be walking side by side, my beloved husband, because he has comes from a lineage of Irish heritage and um, Central European heritage of farmers. And um, that love and earth tending that he does, and he teaches me has completely shifted my own life and um, in such a beautiful way. So I'm very grateful to that, um, to those relationships. And I say that because to denote ourselves in relationship to somebody is a very deep thing. And, um, you know, it is the violence of patriarchy that has made that association seem like, oh, you know, why would you say that? But truly that relationship has been a core um piece of my evolution and understanding what I need to be doing on this world right now. So thank you.
2: I love, I love so much of what you both just shared. Thank you. And I, I want to come back to some of what you were talking about the in the Rupa about that
3: that that connection. Anna? Oh, I'm I'm yes? sorry. I just wanted before oh, yeah. we get off before we get off the land piece, yeah. I just wanted to well, share We will not but, get off the
2: land piece though. Yes,
3: right, but, <laughs> but, but like <laughs> that okay, question. Yeah. Um, you know that yesterday I was actually in conversation with um some tribal historic preservation officers, and we were talking to Rupa's point about the microbes, we were talking about soil and about like the repatriation of bones and indigenous bones in different places. And um Sambar, who's, who's Samish from the Pacific Northwest, he 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 told this story, and I hope he doesn't get offended, I'm sharing it, he said, you know, when we think about our work as tribal historic preservation officers, and we think about the bones of our ancestors in these lands, like you think about how long it takes for bones to disintegrate into the soil, and in some places it takes as little as 50 years, and other places it takes like 200 years, and so when we're talking about microbes and the soil, we're really talking about people too. We're literally walking on the bones of our ancestors. And so like when we look at California and all the indigenous nations, like on this very unique piece of land, like we're walking on the bones of the ancestors of my children and my my husband. And it's like a very intimate thing as Rupa said, like it's, We have the microbes, but we also have these very, when we talk about soil and soil regeneration, like we're talking about the bones of our ancestors, like that was a a really heavy concept for me. And um, so when we talk about land, we're talking about our people
4: that's exactly so i just want to i'm sorry we yeah, this is like being no, in a dinner yes. party that everyone's <laughs> invited to uh, today um it reminds me of something my dear friend uh solomon reese who's also pacific northwest um Sincham uh salto young man amazing man i love him so much but he said to me you know when we're saying we are the land we're not being metaphorical those are our ancestors' bodies, and our food is being grown on the same land. So, we're actually ingesting and becoming our we're recycling that energy and that, um, you know, the that that being um, that state of being is being recycled. Um, and if you want to get a, a cosmologic about it, in terms of you know, my own ancestry around reincarnation. Like we are the reincarnation um, through our association to the land um, and and the elements. And so I think that that is truly beautiful. And he he took that a step further and said, um, so if these are our ancestors on this land, what gives other people the right to put their ancestors in our land, to do burial in their land? Um, And it was such an interesting um, framework of thinking of um, how do we incorporate how do we understand who we are when we are settlers in other people's lands? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very, like you're saying, a deep and intimate and um soul searching question. If we go, you know, beyond uh political analyses into a place of um almost like a cosmological question of where do we belong? Um and how, if if this is not our homeland and we're walking on the bodies and um the bones of thousands of years of presence um how do we do that in a way that is uh uplifting and healing and not harming so that's that's such a deep question
2: yeah yeah and i i love the the back and forth so please you know i love it does feel like the the closest we're going to get to a dinner party anytime soon at the moment so um so you know i think this what you're both touching on and what you started to getting to rupas uh something We talked about when the three of us had the conversation about this this webinar, about this idea of cosmology and what you were talking about, Rupa, about this idea of colonial cosmology and what you're both getting at in terms of the integration between the land and us, our bodies and the land and, and of course, the false false, uh, dichotomy between us as individual humans and the land and the air and the water in which we get our own lives. Um, But I wondered if we could stay with this idea of colonial cosmology and and what do you mean by that when you you think of that Rupa, how does that uh, land for you a day? And how do we, how do we understand more of these intersections between colonialism and power over land? Uh, and, uh, and so let's, let's, let's dig a bit more into that idea. And, uh, you know, I'd love to understand more, um, yes, about that idea of colonial cosmology. And Rupa, either of you can start when I go, Rupa, yeah.
4: Yeah, um, so this really forms the foundation of the book we just finished, which my head is very much immersed in, um, with Raj Patel. Um, so the, the colonial cosmology, how I see it, how we have articulated, it goes back to, um, that false dichotomization of mind, body, nature, wild, um, man, woman, um, these, enforced binaries that the the world was organized upon, not in in an egalitarian way, but in a specific hierarchy. And that was in order to justify the land theft and labor theft of the entire globe um, to serve European interests, Um, whether it was gold or silver or sugar or, you know, you name it, and now lithium. Um, And that perspective continues so that, you know, when we see the collective movements around. Around the world for fighting for dignity of indigenous people, of black and brown people globally. This is what this is. It's pushing against this um, long entrenched 600 year old um, mental tick of French intellectuals who devised a way to um, justify how to rape and pillage the earth. Um, And so that works really well in a colonial capitalist cosmology where you're trying to organize the world to extract from it and profit and turn everything into a resource. Um, That works really well for capitalism. It doesn't work really well for health. Um, as we've seen in the COVID pandemic here, you know, in the United States and in San Francisco, where we've had 8,000 people <laughs> languishing in the streets, sorry, um, 8,000 patients, people languishing in the streets in wildfire smoke and it, with a raging pandemic, um, that, that even just, you know, with $3 trillion of COVID aid, nurses were still in trash bags. Um, So it has nothing to do with uh, care. Our system has nothing to do with care. Um, And that's where, you know, looking at the land and the water and the seeds and the systems in the face of climate collapse, and COVID is just a test to our systems, um, our systems are inadequate um, at dealing with, um, at creating resiliency and health. Um, Indigenous systems around the world, traditional systems of maintaining um, ecological webs of relationships, um, those systems are much more robust on every level in terms of maintaining biodiversity. Um, So I think it's a real time to, um, you know, flip the script and say, okay, this cosmology works for some things. It works to um, amass wealth in the hands of very few people on planet Earth. Um, it works to amass it at the cost, um, at the expense of the water, the health of the people, and all the other creatures and beings. At the health of the air, at the health of the land, and the vitality of our seeds. Um, and so we have to decide. You know, what do we want to do? For me, I prefer, um, I prefer health. So that's that's where I go.
3: And I'll I'll just follow up with Rupa by saying, like this choice, this this like idea of colonial cosmology makes me really really sad because I think every day every one of us is faced with this idea whether we know it or not like I think about how we tell stories um, and they're so important like in indigenous communities and in America like we are our stories we are how we tell our history and you see this cosmology, this colonial cosmology play out in how we tell our stories. You know, you think about the story of, um, you know, David and Goliath, or you think about the stories about the mission, or you think about this like whole trend, how, American people tell the story and there's like the hero and it's like country in the wild or like Brown people. And like these stories are told in our history books. They're told in how we tell retell our own stories. And when you look at like the way indigenous people tell their stories, like we personify the ocean, like she has a name. We personify the mountains. Like my picture behind me, like is Mount Kanatai, like that, that, we give that person, we give that that mountain personhood. And when we look at how agriculture and food systems tell the story, they're given like price tags and and you know, they're called resources, like as a way to depersonalize or depersonify these very important parts of who we are and how well our environment functions and so like the health of these places requires them to have personhood requires them to have personality and when we tell our stories in indigenous in indigenous language or amongst each other like we call them by their names and so like this idea of I mean, it's a really long word, colonial cosmology, but it plays out in really simple ways in how we have our conversations daily, especially in our education system that just reinforces this idea that colonialism and capitalism is the natural and neutral like way of life when really it's not, it's like constantly reinforced. And it makes me sad because Oftentimes like it takes a lot of effort to realize that we're in this like water flow. And so it's um it's a sometimes a really hard concept to get our minds around. But once you start seeing it, like you'll you'll see it all the time. And I think it takes a lot of work both individually and as a community to start recognizing when that happens and to start changing the way we speak about places and people and food and health and water and fire so that like it becomes an element or becomes a person or a, pers- a personality that actually has stake in the community and relationships that operate in our daily lives.
2: Beautiful. Yeah, no, this is this. Okay. Too. I was going to say, you know, you think about the contrast between Land personified, a mountain personified, uh, f- you know, food growing as 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 being, you know, this this um, this living being compared with price tags and barcodes and you know, complete disruption from where where it comes from. But also, I, mean, I just wanted to say, and then I wanted to hear what you wanted to jump in with, Rupa. But as you were talking a day, this importance of stories and and as both of you already in this conversation, the importance of words. What what are the words we have used to describe being a day? You talked about subsistence right and how that so has been used historically in such a derogatory way you know what are the the actual stories we tell and then what are the words that we're we're taught that to use and and what's our understanding Uh, that you talked about how the system that the kind of the air we breathe you know how it's um I love your pager going off, Rupa. It's like, right. That's grounded in the reality. Um, but this idea of this sort of, as you were saying a day, the kind of it's well, what we see, it's just it's natural. It's it's neutral. It's inevitable, as opposed to this is a construction that we can interrogate, talk about, deconstruct, and that we can be talking about what are other models, um, Rupa. You wanted to jump in, and then I, I wanted to come back to another question I wanted to ask you both. But did you want to jump in?
4: Yeah, I just love um, what you said, Ade, about stories. I think that that and um, that you know it's easier to exploit um, to mass farm chickens, for example, if you forget or just ignore that they are, have personhood. Um, the idea of farming, actually, even plants, <laughs> the way we do, is is um, a certain level of um, disregard. For the sacred nature of that plant and what it does for our bodies, and how we are in relationship, um, and once you, you know, and I think like to to disregard the name or knowing um, the person of the mountain, the personhood. That's how it's easier to blow its top off and mine it for its minerals, right? So it's a very violent ideology that has gone around the entire world. It has destroyed ecosystems around the world, which is why I view climate collapse as the end game of colonialism, that this actually climate disruption wasn't here in this way when everyone is was in their territories minding their own business. It happened when, you know, people from Europe decided that they would go and conquer the entire world and bring this mindset that would allow them to separate, um, the the place the, the the personhood from the people from the animals from the from the land and the water and so I think about that um, the the power of the stories is not again metaphorical that stories actually influence our immune systems um, and we write about this in the book they are part of the exposures that tone our immune system. So how we are t- um, taught as children to relate to the things around us can either have a very pro-inflammatory effect um, as if you were you know, raised in a society where you had to be afraid that your children would die from police violence. So you sit them down and you have a talk and tell them how to be if their skin's too dark in this country in a racist society. So those stories actually impact the health of black men and we found that that the traces of those story enter the very cells and are shaping how the immune system reacts so that when a threat like covid comes around a virus that interacts with the immune system when you have a very toned immune system to a pro-inflammatory state you get something like covid and then it just goes haywire
0: you're listening to a tns conversation with rupa maria day, romero Briones and host Anna LePay.
4: And so these things are interacting in not so subtle ways. Even though we, you know, we don't tend to think about stories as being a, a health, you know, no doctor sits you down and go, "What stories were you told when you were a child about how safe and beautiful the world is and how much it's there to support you." Um, and so I think that that work is um, is really critical to understanding. And when it comes to a transformative program and rematriation, is that transformative? It, it involves bringing back the personhood. It involves naming those things, understanding what are their names and who are they and sitting in quiet relationship to those things. Um, and I think that that work is probably... You know, it seems it's not as glorious as going and marching on the front lines and shutting down the, the pipelines, which is super important that we do that. But then there's this other work of remembering, and I and I think that it's super important.
2: Well, I want to stay on this this um, idea of remembering, and and something you also talked about, Rupa, that the, you described the violent this how, what a violent ideology this is, and I would love to connect that to kind of landing this conversation uh on farmland on on this kind of what how does this violent ideology translate into how we're thinking about agriculture how we're thinking about agriculture either as a form of extraction from the land to deliver those price tag and barcoded commodities or do we think of it as a relationship with land that's regenerative that 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 is actually as you both have already talked about deeply connected to our own bodies, to our histories, to our ancestors, to, uh, to other ancestors. You talked a day about that long comet tale that you describe, right. When you talk about your own story of self. So I would love to, to hear you both talk about this idea of kind of land, agricultural land as a form of extraction or as a form of regeneration and, uh, Sticking with another theme of this conversation, the power of words. Uh, if you want to talk about, you know, this word, I feel like it's become very trendy of regenerative agriculture. Um, but what that what that means to each of you, or what you think about that language. But again, really would love to hear more about how this violent ideology is landing on the land, and and if you wanted me to prompt you today to share, that's one of those stories you were sharing with with us before about. The 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 metaphor, not so metaphor of the fence. Um, feel free to jump in on that, but um, but either one of you can. Ade, do you want to get started on kind of exploring some of these themes?
3: Sure. Um, yeah. The, well, I when we say agriculture, like the large majority of the people in this country either have a mental picture of like corn and row crops or um, the tractor or like sprinklers, like our mental pictures of agriculture. And I just invite everybody to think of what mental picture comes up when you think of agriculture, kind of informs us of um, the erasure of everything that became before that. And so, yes, like, all the farmland in America was once indige- indigenously owned. But even beyond the land piece, there are there are food systems and there are ways of existing in the world that don't require wor- wor- row cropping. I come from a community. I come, I'm a Pueblo. We've been like farmers for thousands and thousands of years, but we weren't considered um, agriculturalists upon settlement, even though like most of the the cotton crop and the corn crop came from like my communities, but we weren't considered because agriculture is a very colonial term and it was used to to like draw the line between those who are civilized and those who are not. And of course, we all know what side indigenous people were placed on, but we have to get beyond that because part of The solution to whatever crisis we may be living in now is thinking about those mental images we have, we carry about agriculture and challenging those things. So even when we talk about annual crop agriculture, that is not a sustainable practice, that stems from this mental picture we have of agriculture. and reality, many of the indigenous food systems throughout the mainland Hawaii and Alaska aren't dependent on annual any annual cropping, right? They're, they're dependent on plants that are perennial, that regenerate, that must be cared for, and that have to be tended, whether they're in a row crop system or in a natural system. And so like our ideas of agriculture on the very basic level, of course, have to be challenged. We have to challenge ourselves as people who live in this society and to probably go to the grocery store and buy these, these annual crops like that has to be challenged. But the other thing is like, when we think about what that system requires to operate, um, which is totally dependent on this idea of like private property and the fence. And the story I told, thank you for reminding me, because I was thinking, what story was that? Um, Was when, you know, the extension early on in all the people in my community are farmers. And early on, you know, in the early eighties, my grandpa was a farmer. We had this really bad infest. They called it the extension called it an infestation of elk. So the elk Came and ate all the corn that season. And it was a really sad time. And of course, we spent so much time growing that corn that I was devastated. My grandma was devastated. We weren't gonna have corn that year. And um my grandpa didn't flinch. And I was like, Baba, but they ate all our corn. Like, what are we? And he said, you have to remember, like they, the, we're not growing for just us like we grow for us and everything around us because I was saying Papa we need to put a fence that keeps out the elk and he's like but then that's like cuts off the the blessings and the message that this elk is bringing us so like if they're all coming to eat the corn it's because they're hungry and it's because something is happening on that mountain that has to be tend to and so the next step is to like tend to that mountain and so when we create these blockages of how our environment communicates to us because we only want it to produce in a certain way. we are actually creating like a detrimental situation for the entire community because now you're there's parts of the environment that can't be tended, and so I think that fence that was bought by the extension um, agent is probably still sitting in some place on the reservation, still in rows because we still don't have fences in Cochiti, even though we've had outcome like we've had other like pests um, take the corn. But again, like we see those as messages from like what's happening in our environment. So no, we're not just farmers, we're just us. Those are ways to communicate with the land that makes us. That's so beautiful. Um, Wow.
4: So I, The concept of agriculture, I I agree, had to come from this. It came from a place of enclosing the land and and kicking the people off of it um, in Europe. Um, So when Europeans were busy conceptualizing how they were going to rape, pillage and plunder the entire known world, They were also setting their women on fire and um, enclosing the lands and removing the women from positions of authority around herbal medicines and the tending of the forest, um, which was something that a lot of women um, did in their cultures in Europe. And so I I do think that, um, you know, agriculture, culture of the field again, has been a mindset of dominating nature from, from that, that perspective, the row crops, the, uh, you know, constant annual pushing of the land, um, and that there are, um, other systems like Ade is mentioning of perennial food forests. I remember reading one historic document in our research for the book where, um, It was a description of how when English farmers, you know, came to the colonies, um, the first ones who arrived, um, they were in, I think, Virginia, and they were really working hard to get their crops up and like, you know, planting the fields. And then they look at these indigenous people who are just like hanging out all day and they walk into the forest and they go get something and they come back and sit down and watch these you know, Europeans working so hard. They were just working so hard to get the land to produce. Meanwhile, like this whole ecosystem was abundantly producing all this land. Um, And there was jealousy there. And that was what struck me in reading that document um, was the jealousy of seeing these, uh, the civilization that was not as superior actually exerting themselves less and having much more abundant um, food. Uh, And so I think that it is really a time to challenge those things because looking at California, for example, we've killed off the beaver we've incarcerated the water and now like 80% of our water goes to agricultural agricultural production in the valley where the ground the top soils, have completely been eroded since colonialism uh, where the salmon are gone so that phosphorus pump is gone the the bear are gone so that bear poop is gone the elk are gone so those um, ranging um, animals are gone and um we're the biggest almond producer in the world like who really cares like why are we producing all of this i just saw karen ross's report of all the billions of dollars we've made in california by exporting fruits and nuts like is that what we need As our state is on fire is that how we want to be spending our water resources is that really where we want to be you know investing our time and and um and energy and 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 very very limited resources so it's you Know it's an important time to rethink that. So if enclosure, um, this concept came and spread around the world that you can cut up and sell off Mother Earth this way, um, then recommoning the land and 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 not just well, it's all a free-for-all for everybody, everyone is, you know equal, but actually understanding where you are. You're on someone else's land. It's been stolen. There's been genocide. There's healing. There's um, reconnecting that needs to happen. It's not just now. We're all just you know, kumbaya will get along and and share the land. Um, But I do believe that the dissolution of private property is critical to um, any sane um, food system. And I do believe that um, the people um, collectively working under Indigenous leadership to steward those lands together and those waters together so that you know, one person or one corporation um, can't decide the health and the fate of an entire watershed or water system. Um, It's just, you know, as we're breathing that crappy air in California for three weeks last year straight, um, it's becoming obvious um, that all of these systems have been tooled in a way that creates suffering. And so when I think about what my friend Karina Gould, um, Lishan matriarch says that, you know, it, you know, before colonialism, there was no one who was hungry. There, was no, there weren't stories of people dying of hunger in these territories. There weren't stories of people homeless. Um, that didn't exist in these lands before then, and I know that people have a hard time understanding that. But hunger and homelessness actually didn't even exist 200 years ago, right where you're sitting in, you know, in the Bay Area and in, in, in this area. And so, why have we accepted that? Um, and what are the systems that have been put in place to make everything scarce, especially for the Black, Brown, and poor? communities. Um, and so that's, you know, it's time to deeply challenge those uh, assumptions because we are not going to be able to survive many more fire se- uh, seasons like last one.
2: No. Yeah. And what you're, what and you're I would. About, oh, I just wanted to, to jump in to say, Rupa, as you were talking this, the the it picks up on what you were saying before a day about what is that the frame that we hold about the sort of inevitability or the naturalness of this is just the way systems work and you know it's terrible that there's homelessness it's terrible that there's hunger but that's just inevitable uh and that kind of as you're talking about rupa that kind of uh creation of scarcity uh and then and then the, the the production of scarcity and then the claim that that scarcity is somehow normal inevitable natural uh but Ade, i cut you off but i, I also want to come to be sure we have time uh to come to this concept of rematriation but the day go ahead and then i, I want to come back to that concept <laughs>
3: And just very quickly, when we talk about private property and the systems that are created to support it, like I'm I'm an attorney by training and I was always fascinated by property because that's one of the core, like, bodies of knowledge that you have to learn in the legal system because everything else stems from that when we think about the systems that are needed to support private property which supports agriculture like we think about the police and how like you know militias were created so that like property could be protected whether that be slavery or keeping indians away like All these systems support this private property. But beyond the legal concepts, there's also the social concepts. When you have like private property and it's so highly individualized, it desensitizes us to everything not only in our environment around us but other people and so that we become a society that is wholly individualistic and like the sense of entitlement just starts to reinforce itself over and over again so that like the the kindness and empathy that we need to practice with each other not only is stop being reflected in our community relationships, but in the legal systems that support our, our society. And I think what we're seeing now today are those are the very things that are that we need to like get us through these very difficult times. And it's all reinforced to, to support this idea of private property.
2: Thank you. So, I wanted to come to this idea of, of rematriation, and uh, as I was taking some notes for this conversation, uh, you know, my computer auto like doesn't even register the word. It kept trying to autocorrect me, and I was like, no, no, I want to, I want to type that word. Uh, and uh, so, and I, maybe we'll start with you to 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 share uh, what the, the sort of what the term means for you and and how you see it manifesting in some of the work that you're engaged in.
3: Well um rematriation yeah that's a long word too but like in Cochiti we have this concept of ya and it like it's the word we use for mother like what we call our own mothers but it's also used to call like the lands we live on are ya and like the concept of like the way we interact with each other is like yeah like it's this is like the center of being the the point of creation. And so when we think about indigenous people who are disconnected from not only their land, like that concept means like it, it causes a whole chain of disruptions that affect not only our relationship with the land, but our relationships with each other. And so we're not just fighting for like this inanimate piece of property like we're fighting for the well-being of our entire community and even society like we think of some of the most like and again this concept of sacredness is sometimes very foreign because like everything we should we do should have this sense of duty and responsibility to the places we come from and the people who are there but like we think about going up to the mountain and like saying what prayers we need to to say in order for the health of that environment. And you know, all of this only works if all indigenous people in their ancestral lands are doing this, are like, so it doesn't help if, one tribe has access to some land and then a tribe in Southern California does not because still the system is off balance. And unless we're all continuing to steward these lands and have access and adhering to the responsibilities we have to these places, our ecosystem is gonna be disrupted. It's gonna be unbalanced. And so it's like uh, oftentimes like the whole movement is characterized as like indigenous people wanting their land back. Yes, we want, we want land, but really like, this is for the health of society. Like we've seen wildfires because you know, there's stories about how you need to have land, water, people, and fire at the table all the time. Otherwise, you know, if you have one of those elements missing, they'll come with a with a rage because we know that they're supposed to be in existence. And so the idea of like practicing these philosophies and these covenants that we have with these places is critically important and not just one at a time, but like all at once. And so like, I, the, the concept of the movement of re, rematriation is really important, not just for Indigenous people, but for everyone.
4: I don't know what more to add to that. So <laughs> I think that um, for, for me, rematriation is giving the land back, It's giving it all back. Um, if land was stolen, just give it back. Um, doesn't mean we have to get booted out. Um, if folks like us, they might invite us to stay and help with the healing that needs to happen. Um, it's about learning to um, be in good relationship with our indigenous communities, so that they can do exactly what a day is talking about. So that they can um, they can participate in their ancestral responsibilities to care for these entities and to. Um, and that has an effect on all of our well-being, and so when our indigenous people can have that, um, I believe a lot of these things that are literally insane—from um, the you know shootings that we're seeing in you know daily life now in the United States to um, the fires, to the floods—all um, of these things will come into better balance because. We just don't. We just don't know how to live responsibly and with responsibilities in this land. We don't have that charge from our ancestors in this land. Um, so it's that's what the work we're doing with our Ramatoshaloni friends in um, the San Mateo Coast. We're working to rematriate 38 acres. Um, and when our friend Greg Castro um, sat with us this weekend. And we made a fire out of stones, we made a fire circle together. And, um, you know, I said, wow, it's just amazing that we're sitting here. And um, and he said, it is it is because my ancestors sat like this at the fire with probably these rocks. Um, these look like lodge rocks. Um, and so it's that it's not just a piece of property. It's not just 38 acres. It's literally reattaching and remembering, reawakening, um, rehydrating those promises and responsibilities and duties that we have um, as Indigenous people and as settlers. And so for me, I see my work is to support those movements. It means showing up and doing what my friends asked me to do to get their land back, and then to do the work to create space for them to do what they need to do. And so it's um something that I feel um, all settlers should get involved in right now um I think it's the best work that we can do um, and I'm very 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 inspired by it most of our meetings there are tears um, because the work is so deep so beautiful and so um it's being stewarded in, in such a really a beautiful way um so Rematriation also, I think, is the dismantling of the colonial cosmology. Um, so if it's private property, um, bring it back to the commons. If it's degrading women, put them in leadership. If it's degrading black and brown people, put them in leadership. It's, it's just reversing those orders and watching what happens um, and not doing it as a sense of domination. Um, so avoiding that dominance, Um dominance pathway, um, but but creating a web of relationships that can allow everything to thrive. Um, And so that's where, you know, it's about cultivating a culture of care. That's really what I see, rematriation, the whole big thing. For my friend, Rowan White, um, Aquastasne's seed keeper, who I love so dearly, everyone should check out her work. Um, She says rematriation is um, making space for the mother again, in all of our consciousness. And so what What day was talking about with Yah, making space for that awareness again, um, and that reverence that, you know, life is so precious. You know, it's so beautiful and so precious. I feel that every day as a physician. Oh, my God. Um, and so I, I am grateful for the opportunity to do this work with our friends.
2: I'm Thank you both so much for everything you've shared. This whole conversation—it's just been—I feel like I can't wait to listen to the recording again and to hear uh, hear these stories again. It's so um, such a rich conversation and, and so many so many threads. And I want to bring in uh, folks who are who are tuning in to invite all of you. If you have questions, to use the Q and A function uh, at the bottom of your screen. Uh, to start bringing in some questions that I can raise for Rupa today, a day and uh, as we move to that portion of our program for those of you who have to jump off again this is available will be available online so you can hear this part of the conversation if you don't have time to stay with us uh, for more time right now and uh, I uh, before again before we turn it over to questions and comments I want to just extend a huge uh, huge amount of gratitude to you, Adai, to you, Rupa, for the incredible work you do in the world, for who you are in the world, uh, and for being here as part of this conversation. I, we mentioned at the top of the session that Rupa has a book coming out called Inflamed. Uh, she talked about it a little bit today. I'm really excited about it. And we'll put into the chat how you can already get a jump on pre-registering for the launch event on August 3rd. Um, so you can all join us there uh, virtually online uh, for their book launch with City Lights books, um, but again, please use the Q and A function for for questions as we move to that this part of the program. Uh, but I thought uh, I begin with a question that came up in the chat that I thought taps into so many of the things that you both talked about. Uh, with some uh, uh, one of the the folks tuned into the webinar asked if if you each would share uh, kind of how one can respond to, how one can make sense of what one can do about um, the fact that as, as many of us saw the news of recently, uh, the single largest landowner now in the United States, if I'm not wrong, is uh, Bill Gates. Uh, and uh, somebody put in the chat, I think it was something on the order of magnitude of 269,000 acres that are now owned by Bill Gates and across 19 states. Uh, uh, Rupa, I know you and I have talked about <laughs> the uh, role of philanthropy in a webinar we did together Uh called pretty simply against philanthropy. <laughs> um, but the but I'm just, you know, I feel like this one question would open up, you know, many channels uh, of conversation. Uh, so, so let me pause there and a day, Rupa, if you want to jump in to to talk about kind of what your what your reaction is and how do we make sense of this and what can we do about it.
4: Rupa. We should occupy the land. I think we should just go set up um, land occupations all over Bill Gates land and ask them to give it give it back. That's what I say. And I don't think that, you know, indigenous people should put themselves in harm's way. I think settlers, that would be a fun project to do. What's everyone doing this summer? Um, just do a mass camp out on Bill Gates land and tell them to stop being such a pig. Oh, sorry, that's an insult to our pig relatives. To stop being such a colonizer. I think that should be like the next, um, yeah, he's just a colonizer. Um, it's gross. And
3: um, you know, I think it's a really important concept for all of us to unpack because I think, you know, as Indigenous people have have always said, like you, this idea of private property in which we were first ejected from the lands that are now now in agriculture. Um, again, like it's not just about indigenous people. What happens when you practice these models, which were first practiced on indigenous people are then further like developed and used to disempower others. So like when we see what's happening to indigenous people, we should all be concerned because we're perfecting models that will then be applied to others. And we see this model being applied. First we saw it applied like in mainland America. Then we saw it applied, you know, to some of our island communities. We see it applied to South America. We see it returning back to America by displacing like people who own farms, by people. people who can't like in Appalachia or black land loss, like all of these things are connected because we're perfecting models where we're desensitizing ourselves to the ejection of people from their lands. And so when indigenous people are crying out and saying, you can't do this, we're doing it because we want to stop these models from occurring. But I think Bill Gates is the epitome of like this hyper- perfected model that continues to play out and at some point humanity and humankind has to say these models have to stop and so like this is this is here's the example right in front of us in 2021 when we think that like colonization and historical injustices have stopped but now that historical injustice have just been flipped and are now like focused on like Small farmers in middle America who are like in the crux of bankruptcy, like who don't have the economic resources to fight these large, powerful, like domineering economic powers. And so like these models should be seen as models that have been perfected over generations on different groups of people. This is not new. This is so now is like the call for all of us to say these have to stop.
0: You're listening to a TNS conversation with Rupa Maria, Ade Romero-Briones, and host Anna LaPay.
4: Yes. Can I just just add to that? Um, So, Ade, that makes me think, and something you said earlier, Anna, is that... This capitalist system requires our desperation. And if COVID hasn't proved that to everyone, I don't know what will. It was like cattle prodding black and brown people to get back to work so that the engine of the economy can keep going. There was no universal basic income for black and brown people who are most of the essential workers in this country because if people were to stay home, everything would grind to a halt, which is a great um, example or case test for why we should have a general strike, which is why we should grind, our labor and our participation in the system and stop participating. And so I don't think these things are going to get better through public policy. I don't think the government is going to make this better. I think people have to make it better. And it has to be a, a very conscious and, and systemic dismantling of these structures. We don't need to be desperate to live well. We can have health care. We have doctors who want to treat you. Um, it's the system that makes it um, scarce. It's the system that makes the food scarce. In San Francisco right now, there's 30,000 vacant hotel rooms and there's still thousands of people on the street. So capitalism um, creates these artificial scarcities that drive desperation because when you're desperate, you will sell your labor. You will sell your labor for nothing. And that desperation is what makes the system go. And so if we want to get at it, um, the rematriation, the deep rematriation, we have to be involved in um, systematically dismantling um, the structure and making spaces for abundance um, so that our, our um, colleagues, our friends and our loved ones can do that withholding of their labor and start putting it into systems that will regenerate our health and our well-being.
2: Thank you both so much. We're getting so many great questions. Thank you all for putting your questions into the Um, Q&A. And I feel like another question that came in that kind of is a is a, a another potential lever uh, that uh, was asked. Uh, Owen asked a day as an attorney. You perhaps have the most knowledge about the legal system uh, and how to change it and how to use it as a lever. Aside from eating and loving local food, uh, showing respect to our fellow citizens, do you have a specific recommendations about how to how to make change to the legal system? I wonder if we want to kind of explore that as a lever. Uh, Uh, Before jumping in today, I want to share with all of you, uh, someone asked, we've mentioned many references and groups and resources being shared. Could we possibly share it with everybody tuning in? Yes, we will send a follow-up to everybody who registered with uh, some of the resources we've referenced. Uh, We'll definitely include a lot of different links to to keep the, the sharing and learning going. So we will do that. Uh, and we probably won't have a chance to get to all your questions, but hopefully we'll get to a few more before the bottom of the hour. But I'll turn it over to you a day if you want to get into that, uh, exploring kind of le- the legal system as a lever.
3: Yeah, well, I, I kind of, like Rupa said, I kind of combine the legal system with policy because they're like slightly different things. But like, it's, it's, a, it's a spider web, right? Like once we get into that system, like there are, mechanisms and institutions within our legal system and our policy creation that are meant to um, disempower and to sift the noise from like actually challenging these really old institutions and so like you look at some of the work that's that's challenging the doctrine of discovery for example it's really really hard because the it's the way we structure legal systems and policy is that we're sifting out the noise and so part of this this deciding what the noise is means that people in power get to decide those things so like i do think there there's opportunity there we need like to see more brown people as judges we need to see more brown people as running for for political offices and for for um becoming attorneys but at the same time we need the people on the ground to be constantly advocating for the changes. Because I think once you enter the legal system, once you become educated, you're almost like, in the machine and so like we can't forget about the people who choose to enter that machine or choose to to utilize their skills to try to change those machines from the inside because they need the people on the ground to kind of ground them in the work that they're supposed to be doing because the idea is once you become part of this massive legal machine or policy machine you become part of the structure that holds it up and so it's always a catch-22 and like we should be giving support and reminding people who enter these professions that they're connected and rooted to the places that where the people are asking for change and it's a it's a very delicate balance and I always um, you know offer prayers and strengths <laughs> and like at words of encouragement to people who choose those professions becomes it because it comes really hard like these ideas that you are now someone special or someone as an individual like tokenism is real like separating you from your community conquer and dividing these systems is real and so like the more connected we can be to people who choose these professions the better I think there are specific legal actions that need to be taken and I you know, I have papers that I can share about that for for everyone. But
2: Thanks, today. And as you were talking, I was you know also looking at Rupa, seeing you in your your scrubs, thinking of you there in the hospital, you know, talk about joining a profession and a a sector, right? Like how do you uh, I, I just kept thinking about your own experience there um so much. So I don't know if you want to jump in. I have another question I could bring up. Too.
4: no i think that is critical because um, the colonial project was advanced by missionaries and medics um so we were part of you know my my uh profession my chosen profession as a western medical doctor we are a part of that colonial violence um, we kept the colonizers healthy enough to extend to, to extract um, our work was never there to serve the indigenous peoples of the lands that were conquered. And so then those of us who became part of the, um, you know, the generations that, that, came after the initial waves of colonialism got subsumed into this culture. Um, So I think that that's where having this understanding that Ade is speaking to and this commitment of a political education and a a commitment to the communities that we come from and that we serve is a critical part of the work that we do. Um, And that's part of the work I've been doing around decolonizing the work of medicine um, because it is a a harmful um, it's a harmful structure. And so how do we, how do we morph it into something that could be of service? But absolutely, it's been a real um, uh, challenge. It's been a real, it's a, your body takes a toll um, when you enter these systems, if you're a sensitive person. Um, And so it's good. I I keep myself healthy with music and marrying a farmer. So you have to take care of yourself in this work.
2: Great, so I wanted to bring up a question. uh, Someone asked, uh, uh specifically, they wrote in a question as a landowner in Napa, California, uh, while we don't have much land and it's mostly vineyard and gardens, what would be some ways we could honor Native Americans who once owned this land? So I wonder if you each want to answer that specific question, but also more broadly thinking about this uh, this growing land back movement and how um, how landowners can be a part of it uh, in all kinds of different ways. Ade, you want to start?
3: And we'll go to Rupa. I'll pass that one over to Rupa. I got to think about that one. Rupa?
4: Um, I think one of the first things they could do is um, get to know whose land they're on and start developing relationships with people and see what kind of um, leadership there is and Who's involved? There's some great people in the North Bay who are doing amazing work. I can think of the Cultural Conservancy. Um, I would get in touch with them and ask them for their thoughts. Um, I would be open to the idea of giving the land back and leasing it from them if they would be interested in that. I would um, be open, um, suggest being open to asking for, you know, once the land has been given back and the lease has been. Um, decided that there was perhaps like maybe a land management strategy together that's developed together. And I think that that's part of the work of also decolonizing, which is to make new culture between settlers and indigenous peoples, so that we can learn how to be together on land. But I think it should um, ideally start with giving land back if if one is able to. Um, And if one is not able to, Finding philanthropists like Bill Gates to give you their money so that you can buy the land and give it back, if you know, if the if the land is actually owned by a bank. That would be a philanthropy movement, a movement I would love to see um, is relieving people of their mortgages. So I would be happy to, you know, have my, my mortgage gone because I'm enslaved to the bank to pay off my debt, um, so that the land is then liberated and then it can be given back. Back. And then I can call up my friend Karina and say, hey, can I stay on this land? And yeah, I'll take care of the insurance and the legalities, but um, can I lease it from you um, for a dollar a year? Is that okay? Um, imagine if we did that. Imagine if we undid the bank's roles in our lives, and then we're actually just, you know, all that money that's been going into paying my mortgage could go into um creating a neighborhood school or a clinic down the street, um, a place where we could grow a farm on our block, um, where everyone could do that with their land. And then um, we have different ways of relating. Um, So I would love to see more creative um, uses of money from our money hoarding friends who've done well at the game of hoarding money um, to just liberate liberate the land. So that's, you know, my two cents. day you probably have something much better since you've studied this and, and know more about
3: real estate than I do. I, I pause because it's like a really emotional thing. Like I have two children who are big Valley Pomo, and that's just over the hill from Napa County. And so we drive through Napa all the time, and so I know the stories um, from my husband's people and my children's heritage. And it um, it's a painful thing to know that um, my kids have to learn these stories. Um, that and you know, you see Napa, and you see so. I mean, it's just. I don't think I can answer this question because it's like a really painful question like and that's that's the thing with this re- movement like we can intellectualize these things as much as we and I'm an attorney like we're supposed to be emotionless about how we have land transactions but it's painful like these lands have stories attached to them that I have to tell my children and explain why they can't go to the geysers and you know why they can't go to these really sacred places in that county and you know like we even now we walk through Napa County maybe St. Helena and you know we do get looked at um you know we and I and I'm sorry I just it's a really emotional question and it's hard for me to answer that so
2: Thanks a day. And and no need to apologize. And thanks for your you know sharing, sharing. And and it, it you know, your as you spoke, I thought about this a question that someone shared to uh to the both of you about how um which really taps into what you were just getting at acknowledging the power and pain and trauma of stories. Uh, and uh, and also the beauty and the healing and the nourishment of stories and, uh, and how, um, you know, the, the person asked, you know, um, how about this power of stories to heal? Uh, how do we tap into the stories to nurture our own resilience? Um, and so I, I don't know if we want to, uh, uh, share some thoughts for, for Bonnie who asked this question. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, but thank you a day for, um, for, for sharing, uh, and, um, yeah, and or Ade,
4: you want to talk more about stories? I just also want to say thank you, Ade, for sharing your um, emotional, for your heart there um, with us and also bringing us back to what this really is, what we're talking about here, is that people have been orphaned for from their mother. Um, and that is a wound that um, is really um, very deep And it's not something that can be fixed easily. Um, And I do think it is something that requires all of us to participate, um, to make that space. So as a mother to a mother, I hear your, um, I hear what you're saying. And I, um, I, I, it almost makes me want to just end (laughs) this conversation in some way, because that feeling that, that, um, a day just communicated is is truly what we're talking about, is the honoring of a mother who is um who is feeling the the pain of um, her children's orphan state. And that's you know, that's what we're talking about in this in this work that we're doing. And um yeah, so I don't think I have anything else to say, Anna. <laughs>
3: I yeah I yeah it's hard like like the stories I the stories are a source of strength stories are a source of resiliency but they're also a source of pain but the one thing that you know they they teach us in Cochiti about pain and especially pain from experience is that that's what That's like the very basic form of connection with people. Is that pain, like, reminds you of what you need to feel better. And one of the first things they tell you to do is that you connect with others. And so, like, and when you connect with somebody, you talk story. In Hawaii, they say they call it talking story. And so, I. I think we often give credence to scientific knowledge. We give credence to legal systems. We give credence to titles and all all of that, like the power of stories often forgotten. And so like, I always encourage people to think of their own story of how they came to whatever lands you're on, because that's an important part that will become part of that story that piece of land for centuries, whether you're Indigenous or not. And so I think the power of stories, we we don't even know the bounds or the, the extent of that power until we really start giving stories, our own stories and the stories of our people and the stories of our land credence.
2: Mm. Beautiful. Well, you know, I think um, as Rupa was saying, and as you were saying today, you know, this really brings us to the heart of this whole conversation. And, um, I just feel like I've, lo- I, I've learned so much whenever I, I, I hear either of you speak and hear either of you share your stories and thank you so much for being here, um, and for sharing your stories. And, uh, I, um, I, I think we will be wrapping up in this moment and, um, and want to thank everybody who joined us today for this really special conversation. I want to uh, encourage all of you to learn more about the work that day and Rupa do. It is beautiful work. Uh, it is uh, inspiring work. It is powerful work. We'll share resources with all of you so you can learn more. Uh, uh, Ade, Rupa, if there was any last words you wanted to share before I turn it over to Kira from uh, the New School of Commonwealth for some final words, please. Last words to either one of you who want to, if you want to share anything and uh i apologize for not getting to all of the questions but again you'll get you'll you'll hear from us by email and might be able to answer some of the questions by email too
4: my only last words is that i would like to invite you over for dinner that's all i would like to have the honor of cooking for you beautiful um, souls and um to sit all night and um to share our hearts and our in our uh, prayers and visions for a kinder, more beautiful world. Thank you, Anna, and thank
3: you, Ade. And my final message is to all my Indigenous brothers and sisters who are listening, like fish on, hunt on, gather on.
2: <laughs> thank you. Beautiful. Kira, I'll turn it over
1: to you. Thank you both so much. Wonderful. Rupa, Ade, and Anna, thank you again for your presence here today. It's just really a rich and uh, critical conversation. And thank you for sharing some of your stories and some of the emotions that come with it. I think those are all important. And thank all of you for joining us here in this virtual space. We hope you'll join us again for other events in this series. And we'll have the recordings produced of this conversation available in a week or two. As Anna said, we will uh, send out some resources for you and a follow-up for those of you who registered and are here with us on the webinar. Please consider making a donation to help us keep these programs going, um, putting the links for both Real Food Media and The New School in the chat right now. Uh, each donation is so important to us, it helps us keep this programming going. Rupa, Maria, Ade Romero-Briones and Anna LePay. Thank you for being with us at The New School at Commonweal.
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Rupa Maria, Ade Romero Briones, and host Anna LaPay. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.